0: Welcome to Quest, where we believe a great faith, great church experience, and great life is grounded in authentic relationship with God and living life with friends. Join us today in changing our world, one friendship at a time. If you would like more information about connecting at Quest, stay tuned after the message. So today we're continuing our Romans series. We've been going through Romans uh, chapter by chapter, sometimes verse by verse. Uh, today's topic is a doozy. Romans is one of the most important books in the Bible. Many theologians think it is the uh, most important book in the Bible. It is packed full. We've talked about so many things about what the gospel is, what it isn't, and challenged religious thinking and, and, and all sorts of things. We've talked about original sin. We've talked about sexuality. We've talked about predestination. And today, as we continue our way through Romans, Paul talks to us very, very very plainly about government, our favorite topic in the whole world to talk about, isn't it? Don't shoot the messenger. Here's what Paul says, chapter 13, "...let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established." The authorities that exist have been established by God. I think we struggle with that statement, and I think that's the reason Paul repeats it here twice in a row. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from the fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right. And you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. Paul says, Be subject to the governing authorities. This word subject is not a mincing word. It means to submit, to obey. There's no other way to look at it. In addition, Paul says the authorities that exist are established by God. And I think a good question for all of us is do we believe that? Do you believe that? Authority and submission are difficult topics, they're loaded words we live in a culture that is more accustomed to questioning authority than submitting to it that's often for good reason as well right many in leadership have let us down they've been untrustworthy many are afraid of authority as it has been used to exploit and harm and oppress we have felt the sting of poor leadership in our homes and businesses and churches and in the government in our culture Submission is often associated as being weak, and authority is often thought of as the opposite of loving. We live in an anti-authority age, and we are skeptical of authority again for good reason. We don't know what or who to trust anymore. And yet, Paul clearly states God created authority. What does he mean by that? What do you think? Did God create and establish authority? Is it from God? How does that affect our view of authority? And especially as Paul's talking about, how does it view our view of, affect our view of government? We all struggle with some political leaders, be it a president or governor or mayor, whoever it is. You're faced with the tension of this passage asking you to respect authority with which you disagree. Just scroll down Facebook for less than two minutes, you're going to find somebody making a rant about something political, right? Social media is the go-to place to mock and insult authority figures with which we disagree. As Christians, we have to be strong, biblically informed in our beliefs about different political and social issues. Yet Paul is telling us authority comes from God. He goes on saying, Consequently, whoever rebels against authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. Ouch. The Bible says God is the source of all authority. No authority is equal to or rivals God's authority. He is the ultimate supreme authority. God uses the Holy Spirit to help us live well and help us follow His guidelines. Paul told us that we are to live by the Spirit and not by the flesh. If the Holy Spirit leads us, the reality is we don't need the authority around us to keep us in check. We don't need as much external authority if we submit to following the Spirit. But for our world... And for all of us, God uses other people like police and parents and coaches and teachers and politicians as authority in our lives. We need government and authority over us because people are sinners. The world is broken. Satan is real. Evil is not going to stop itself. I think we can all agree that not everyone is good and safe, and evil needs to be restrained. We can't just let people do whatever they want. God uses governmental authority to restrain evil. Yet I think many, if not most of us, don't like authority. I mean, when someone tells me not to do something, I find myself wanting to do it more. You can't tell me what to do. We don't want to be under authority. We don't want others to tell us what we can and cannot do. Thus the emphasis on choice. As the highest value in our culture right now. That's what we call the American way. The, we value independence, and often that independence is a push toward rebellion. Our first instinct is often to push back, to bristle, to argue, to disagree, to disobey, to disregard authority, to look for the holes in their argument or the ways we can make them look bad. It isn't this often our response to God as well, if we're honest. See, sin wants us to rebel against God. So it's vital that we examine how we look at authority and how our children view authority as well. Paul David Tripp says authority is one of the foundational issues for every child and how we view it is essential to our faith. How we teach and model the protective beauty of authority is foundational in parenting. God has chosen to make his invisible authority visible to our kids every day using us as parents. Wow, no pressure there, right? Your parental authority is to be representative of God's authority. So every time you exercise authority in your child's life, it is to be a beautiful picture of the authority of God. You are there to teach your kids that authority is good and loving and patient and forgiving and secure and faithful, and the truth matters. If you respond harshly or impatiently or with irritation and condemn them, it deepens the natural rebellion your child has against your authority and against God's authority. Your job is to teach kids how beautiful authority really is. We want them to find joy in surrendering to the authority of God that He's placed in their life and ultimately surrendering their hearts to the authority of God. Now, I know I didn't always do this well with my kids. None of us do, but it's a holy goal that God's called us to as parents. It would be fascinating and beneficial to study and explore the authority of God because I think many of us have warped, messed-up perspectives on God's authority. We don't see His authority as good, as loving, as patient, as faithful, as true. So how do we live as Christians and citizens of our nation with all of our faith and government issues? How are we as Christians to live when those in authority don't use it well? Today we're going to spend most of our time exploring two major points, the responsibility of those who govern, which Paul addresses slightly, and more so the responsibility of those who are being governed. But first, by way of introduction, to help us understand it better, I think sometimes we wonder why Paul includes this section on the government right here. And people have questioned whether it should even be here. It seems a little bit random to some people. But Paul doesn't work that way. He's really intentional in his thoughts and processes and arguments. He actually plops this discussion on the authority of the government in the middle of two commands. We dealt with one last week. The command for us to love our enemy. In Romans 12, 17 through 21. And then after it immediately comes how to love our neighbor. Paul's extremely strategic in this. Remember earlier in Romans 12, Paul said we are to overcome evil with good. We are to bless those who curse you. Basically telling us by tagging on now the government, we submit, we honor, we obey, even when the government leaders don't deserve it. And this is how we live out what Paul said last week. Do all that you can to live at peace with everyone. As much as you can, live at peace with the government by honoring and obeying them. Paul also makes a point in Romans twelve nineteen for us to leave vengeance to God. And I think it's brilliant that he puts the government discussion here because actually having a government helps us have ways that we cannot take vengeance into our own hands. God uses government authorities to bring justice. It's not the ultimate way, but God does use government to execute justice on his behalf. By way, of further introduction, Paul knew Caesar, when he wrote Romans, would likely see this letter and read it. And he wanted to make sure that if Caesar saw this, that, that he knew the intention of Christianity was not to overthrow the government. There are many other religions across the Roman Empire that were trying to overthrow the Rome, and the Jews had sections of them who were being a part of that. We see this in Jesus' life and Jesus' details. He lets his zealot disciples know that overthrowing Rome was not the goal. Before his crucifixion, he told Peter to put down the sword because force was not the way to bring God's kingdom. However, this doesn't mean that we're not to influence human government. We are to speak to laws and those in authority and challenge them with truth and concern for justice. And God may actually very well call some of you to serve in the government, like Nehemiah or like a friend of mine that I coached as a church planner who later became a state senator when God said, I want you to switch over. He might call some of you to do the same thing. As kind of a final point of introduction here, it may be helpful as well to recognize what we want the relationship of the church and state to look like. Theologian John Stott, one of the giants of the theological world over the last 100 years, uh, identifies four general approaches to the relationship between church and state that have been throughout history. First one is theocracy. The church controls the state. Uh, Think of the Vatican in years past or Islamic caliphates. It's not good. It doesn't ever turn out well. Erastinianism is the state controls the church, so think of China or think of Russia. This is even worse. Constantinianism is a compromise in which the state favors the church, and the church makes accommodations with the state in order to retain their favored status with the state. Parts of Europe for many, many years were this way. It's not very present there much, but there's still some of the old structure that you see there in England that used to be that way more. We may think God wants the third one where the state favors the church. But as we said before, people are flawed. And it will always end up with the church compromising to stay in the position of power, which is part of the reason the church in America is having troubles today. And fourth, partnership. Church and state recognize that each has a distinct God-given responsibility, and they encourage and collaborate so that each one of them can fulfill their responsible roles in society. Stott actually says this last one is actually more in line with what Paul teaches in Romans 13. So let's jump into the core. Our first big question, what is the role and responsibility of the government? So Paul doesn't actually give us an exhaustive explanation of the government's role because his primary role in writing this is to tell the church how they should relate to rulers. And yet there are some implications that we can draw from this for the purpose of government. Verse 4, For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. So this is not a new thought. In the Old Testament, God talks about the pagan king as my servant through the prophet Jeremiah when he says this. He says, now I will give all of your countries into, my, into the hands of my servant Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. This verse emphasizes that God is the ultimate authority. And even an evil leader can be used by God and cannot stop God's plan. Which is why we don't have to get anxious and fearful over the government's actions when it doesn't represent our views. Why? Because when God allows those who don't worship Him to be in power, He is not forgetting justice. God is the judge. There will be judgment. When and how is not up to us. It's up to Him. And the whole image of the sword in Paul's writing is interesting. sword represents the power to punish. In the Bible, you see the, the sword first in Genesis 3 when the angel is keeping fallen humanity out of the Garden of Eden and from getting to the Tree of Life. Adam and Eve had sinned and they needed to protect them from living forever. In a sense, death is actually a gift to us in a sinful world. That we don't have to live with sin forever. In Revelation 19, the last person in the Bible to wield a sword is Jesus. As he comes back to judge the nations, the point is the sword comes to deal with sin. The first sword is in the hand of of an angel. The last sword is in the hand of the Lord. And in between, God hands out swords to his servants to help deal with sin, bring justice, and protect life. The government's role is to help punish the wrongdoer and protect its citizens from wrongdoing. Tim Keller kind of summarizes the role of government this way with a warning. He says Christians need to be wary of extreme ideological views on the role of government. He says on the one hand, it's hard to find biblical support for the very conservative view that the government should do nothing but basic law enforcement. On the other hand, the Bible cannot support the very liberal socialist view of the government as savior. Those are the responsibilities of the government. Now let's look at the second question. What are the responsibilities of those being governed? Verse 5, therefore it is necessary to submit to the authorities not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. We obey God, and therefore we submit to those in authority not just out of fear of the consequences of punishment, but out of conscience. Meaning we obey the government whether we think you'll get caught or not. This is also why you pay taxes, Paul goes on to say, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. We tend to focus on all the the controversial stuff of government in our day, but regardless of what party is in charge, the vast majority of what they provide are things we're grateful for. They build and fix roads that we drive on and keep zoning ordinances and have 911 services and they make international trade agreements and they they provide for national defense that we all pay for in our taxes and even at times like this we are grateful for those things. Paul goes on and say to say this, give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If you owe revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. In other words, we're going to tell the truth. We pay our taxes. Even if we can get away in not doing it because we worship God who sees everything. So we don't take advantage, we pay it in full. Now, at first it seems Paul is saying we always need to submit. And yet the government's rule is not absolute. Paul is saying to us, we submit to them as a way of submitting to God, which means if obeying them ever causes us to disobey a direct command of God, we are duty-bound to practice civil disobedience. Verse seven about taxes alludes to Jesus' interaction in Matthew 22, and the Pharisees asked Jesus whether they should pay taxes. But of course, the Pharisees were trying to trick Jesus. And in those days, taxes were paid to Rome, who had taken over Jerusalem and they were oppressing the Jews. The taxes they collected from the Jews not only founded, funded uh, Caesar's extravagant lifestyle, but paid for soldiers and prisons and crucifixions, and including the building of the Colosseum, which was used to torture and kill. Jews and Christians and others. Doesn't this seem like something we as Christians that we should not have to give our money to? Think about it. In what ways today are our taxes not used for godly things today? So Jesus is put in this predicament. If he says yes to paying taxes, he's saying that people should give their money to help support oppression on the other hand, if Jesus says no to paying taxes, the Romans are going to kill him and cause, you know, because of insurrection. And so Jesus does this. He says, well, take out a coin, the coin that you pay taxes on. And he says, look at it. Whose image is on it? And the answer was Caesar's. And Jesus says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And Jesus' statement there was held with very deep conviction by the early church. And Paul echoes it here when he says, Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. It starts with God who is the authority over all things. And we submit to civil authorities in respectful and honoring ways. Even when the people in those positions are not worthy of much respect, we respect the established authority structure because Paul is communicating and Jesus is communicating that honor is non-negotiable. The giving of honor is non-negotiable. We may think, well, how? How do we do this? Well, it may be helpful to remember when Paul wrote these instructions, none of those in authority were Christian In fact, the authorities they were dealing with were hostile toward the church, a totally pagan and corrupt government. And about this kind of government, Paul says to give respect and honor. So here's the question. How do we honor a political leader who I disapprove of, or I don't believe in so much of what they stand for? Paul would not have approved of... Basically, any of the political leaders up in high positions, the governing leaders of his day, because and if they'd had a democracy and elections, he probably would have wanted to even vote for any of them. Remember, Paul experienced the Roman government led by Caesars. The first emperor Paul ministered under after becoming a Christian was Caligula. Caligula killed his mom and brother to make sure they didn't take his throne. Caligula Caligula had openly incestuous relationships with three of his sisters. He got mad at the weather one day and declared war on the god of Neptune. So he took his whole army down to the sea and they all hit the water with swords and they took seashells for their trophies. He replaced the heads of various deity statues with a bust of his own head. During the gladiator games, he would take random people from the crowd and throw them into the arena to be attacked by animals and killed just to entertain himself because he thought it was funny. And then came Claudius, who while a little less crazy, was even crueler. Claudius handed over the throne to Nero, and when we say handed over, we mean Nero's mom killed Claudius in his sleep so that Nero could replace him. Nero was in power when Paul appealed to Caesar in Acts, when the Jews unjustly accused him and falsely imprisoned him. And he was the ruler when Paul wrote Romans. Nero later would kill Peter and Paul and thousands upon thousands of Christians. Most people believe he set fire to Rome, blamed the Christians for the fire, and crucified and burned hundreds of them. Nero did many other despicable things, way too graphic and horrible to stay in this venue. And Paul tells his fellow Christians to submit to this government in an honoring, respectful way. Really? Yeah. How do you speak about the current or past president? What if you think they've caused irreparable damage to the country? I'm sure Paul thought similar thoughts about the incestuous, wife-killing, Christian-killing, megalomaniac Emperor Nero, and yet he says submit, honor, respect. And there are numerous biblical examples in the Bible of treating those who don't deserve respect with honor, who are in leadership. Despite being put in prison for crimes, Joseph did not commit. Joseph treated Pharaoh and the Egyptian guards with honor. David blessed and prayed for King Saul, even though Saul wanted to kill him. When David had an opportunity to defeat Saul with the sword, he resisted the temptation, left vengeance to God, and greatly honored Saul in that moment with his words and his actions. David wouldn't even speak negatively about Saul. Why? Why? For reasons only God knows, God wanted Saul to be king yet for a time. So out of respect for God's timing, David gave respect to Saul. These are great models for us to consider as we engage in political discussions and debates today and think about how to relate to authorities with whom we disagree. Some of you you actually may be called and gifted to serve as government leaders, and you're going to have to face this at a level most of us would never face. And learn this well. To go into positions of influence to seek positive change on behalf of God. In the Old Testament, Nehemiah is a man who works for pagan, evil Persian government. Nehemiah was in a high-trust cabinet position as the king's cupbearer because people were trying to kill the king. He would taste everything and drink everything before it so they couldn't poison the king. And I mean, think about it. Nehemiah is in one of the best positions possible to plot and undermine and murder this king, but Nehemiah is trustworthy. He gained so much favor with this king that when he asks to rebuild Israel's city of Jerusalem, the king gives Nehemiah governmental support, all kinds of resources, finances, timber, protection, and to build the walls of the city back up. All because a godly follower influenced a godless Persian king because of honor and respect. Daniel is another excellent example. He's taken captive As a teen, by the evil conquering, raping Babylonians, they forced him to be trained in all of their pagan beliefs and pagan religious arts, and they castrated him. Even then, David remains steadfast in serving God and serving the authorities in Babylon with honor. The political leaders start telling David dreams for which God gives him interpretations and the consequences. David becomes a prominent political leader in Babylon for decades through the rule and reign of multiple kings because he conducted himself with character and honor and respect to the kings. Both of these God God followers showed us how we can serve the government even when we disagree with the government as we continue to seek God and positions of influence to change the things and stand against, that stand against God. And as we said before, the Bible gives a very clear basis for civil disobedience. If the government commands you to do something God forbids, or if the government forbids you to do something God commands, then civil disobedience done with respect and honor is a Christian duty. Uh, technical definition of civil disobedience is this. It's a public, nonviolent, and conscientious act, contrary to law, usually done with the intent to bring about change in the policies or laws of the government. And there are so many biblical examples of this, showing that we are to not submit to authority at times, but even in that, to do it with respect and honor. And X, Jewish authorities asked Peter and Paul to uh, Peter and John to stop preaching about Christ and his resurrection and Peter said to them we must obey God rather than men but he did it respectfully Daniel Shadrach Meshach and Abednego were actively involved in civic affairs even in a pagan society but when King Nebuchadnezzar woke up one morning and said I need a 300 foot high statue of me and everyone needs to bow down and worship it forced a decision as it was built the followers of God were commanded to do what was forbidden, worship a God other than the true God. And these three men said no to bowing down to a fake God. And they did it with great respect. And that was an act of civil disobedience, and they were thrown into the fiery furnace and they came out alive. Daniel had the same thing. He couldn't pray. He said, no, I'm going to pray anyway. He got down on his knees. They threw him in a lion's den and he came out very much alive. Another example was the Israelites in slavery who would not follow the decree of the Egyptian Pharaoh to kill the infant boys, which is very similar to those who hid Jews during World War II. Even Paul himself practiced civil disobedience and as a result was jailed numerous times. For sharing his faith. Civil disobedience may look like following, like, like like China today. I mean, it's difficult to practice your faith openly in China. So much of the church is underground. China had, until recently, a one-child policy. In 2016, they changed it to two children. And now in May of this year, they changed it to three children that a family can have. But the consequences of that policy lingers. You hear horrific stories of forced abortions and botched sterilizations, parents being imprisoned for having more than one child. If a mother went into hiding when she had her second child, the relatives would be punished. Civil disobedience would be, I'm not going to kill my child. We saw civil disobedience done really well with Rosa Parks, who loved Jesus, who knew every person was made in the image of God and how God died for all of us and we all have the same rights so we should all be able to sit together on the bus. Her biblical convictions drove her to disobey civilly. Martin Luther King Jr. won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1955 for civic disobedience. In his letter from the Birmingham Jail, you can see he recognized the legitimacy of government and he pleaded with them to fulfill their God-given responsibilities even as he defied them for not doing so. We can honor and respect even as we disagree and disobey. Paul recognized this as a force for good in the city. In his letter to Timothy Paul urges Christians to pray for government leaders to act justly so we might live peaceful lives. In summary, this whole passage is built upon the assumption that the government can only do so much. It has a limited role. Our hope is never based on the government because even the best government is imperfect and cannot make things right in this world. More government, less government, the same government, different government will not save us because the sin of greed, the sin of abusive power, the sin of oppression, the sin of injustice is simply expressed in different ways through whatever form of government you have. Yes. Yes. We are to be involved in government when needed. We are definitely to be, as followers of Christ in a democratic society, informed and to use our voice to vote. But our primary focus is like Paul, like Jesus. We focus on being a blessing to this world, and we can do this with whoever is in power, no matter the form of government, no matter the level of disagreement. We don't wait until we get a government change, until our guy gets in power. We didn't see Paul waiting around until the right Caesar got in charge. See, no, Paul and his followers of Jesus got on their knees and they prayed to God, knowing that Jesus is the better king and that God is always in power. Always. Worship team, come on back up. So how can we walk this out this week? Well, what do you sense the Holy Spirit was highlighting for you in your mind, the place where you maybe got a little bit prickly on some things, or or just the memory that came to mind, or that thing you posted, or that thing you said? What was the Holy Spirit bringing to mind? Is there any area where God would challenge you to submit to authority with more respect and honor, especially when you disagree? especially when you hate what they're doing. Are there any areas you believe God is asking you to practice civil disobedience with honor and respect? So I think one of the most important things God wants to do is to help us remember His ability to bring justice and faithfulness, that He has the power to follow through on His excellent work in our world and His plan in our world that we can trust Him with that. Thank You, Jesus, for Your forgiveness. Thank You that we get to receive it. Lord, thank You, God, that You are on the throne, that neither death nor life can trump what You do. Lord, that you've given us examples all throughout history of how you have accomplished your purposes through the most evil regimes and even the most evil leaders. That your good and your church goes forward when we learn to love and honor and respect. When we learn to pursue even those who we disagree with, with a grace and a kindness like you did coming to earth. Lord, that your power becomes evident through us in that way. So, Lord, make us your church. Make us your people. And we trust you. With our government, with our nation, with the regimes of this world, we trust you. We hope you encountered the love of Jesus in this message. If you'd like to be a part of the ministry God is doing through Quest, whether in person or online, go to questvineyard.org for more information. If you want to worship God by supporting Quest financially, go to questvineyard.org give. May God bless you this week as you partner with God to change the world one friendship at a time.